You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for bringing us back here today. We are excited to continue to talk about your principles for our lives because we know that they're principles to prosper us, to give us a good future and a hope. So God, we pray that as we continue to delve into your word, we pray that you can have help us to have open minds, open hearts, and willing spirits to, to follow faithfully in your footsteps. So please be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in the Great Mind Controversy series. Does anyone remember the title of our first seminar? Quiz time, there's no prizes. Anyone remember? It's similar to the Michigan camp meeting thing. Knowing the time, yes. So our first seminar was talking about knowing the time based off of our theme text, and we talked about the mental health crisis. And with that crisis, we talked about basically becoming more aware that it's not just something that's happening in the world, but it's also happening in our lives. And then does anyone remember the title of the second presentation? Brainwash, yes. So not only did we talk about from a great controversy perspective, right, of the mental health crisis, but then we narrowed into Satan's main attack. And what is Satan's main attack? On the mind, right, but specifically using behaviors, what we do, in order to attack the frontal lobe. And we talked about what the frontal lobe is responsible for and how the frontal lobe is not only regarding decision-making, planning, those very important functions, but most importantly, how we connect with God. And so he knows that if he attacks the frontal lobe, then, let's quiet down a little bit, and then he can control the entire mind, right? And so we talked about God's solution, because we're not just talking about the enemy, but God has solutions for us, and one of those solutions is CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And we talked about behavior specifically, but today we'll be talking about thoughts and emotions, right? The entire triangle. And we see that it comes from God's, God's word, that there's a connection between our behaviors, our thoughts, and our emotions. And so just as a summary, these were the three steps that were related to behavior change how we change our behavior. And so some of you may have already started to make some changes, and that's fantastic. And I would encourage you to make those changes, but there are things that we also need to do in managing our emotions and our thoughts. Because if we only change our behaviors, our behaviors can continue to return. So today's title is Freedom Through Captivity. Does anyone know where this title comes from? It comes from a Bible verse, which we'll talk about later. But let's talk about Satan's attack, specifically now on our thoughts and our emotions. We'll start with emotions. Let's start with a simple question. Are emotions good or bad? Yes. <laughs> Great response. Yes. Any thoughts? Are emotions good or bad? Good. Yes. Another yes. It could be both. Okay. Now, we are becoming more and more educated, but... Um, typically, we have the culture basically teaches us, including the Christian culture, emotions are bad, right? Oh, when I get really angry and I yell or I get really anxious, 
Katie, are you saying that these things could be potentially good? Well, let's look at you know, what the Bible says. When we typically think about emotions and that they're bad, unfortunately, we misquote this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? Have you used this verse maybe sometimes to talk about your emotions? Now, this is misused, and we'll talk about why. So we see this verse, and we're like, oh, emotions are bad, desperately wicked. But we don't recognize that the Bible also talks about emotions in different ways. Ecclesiastes 3 talks about how there's different types of emotions, right? There's a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. There are different emotions. And so we need to understand, well, what is Satan's agenda behind the culture ideas of what we have of emotions? So if we think about Satan's agenda, think about different cultures. Let's say, let's start with an easy one, the military culture. What does the military culture teach us about emotions? You don't show them, you suppress them, right? They're bad, it makes you weak, right? That's the military culture. Then we could also take it from the perspective of men. What are men taught about emotions? Don't cry. What was that? Just keep on, right? Keep on keeping on. Men are taught that emotions are bad. What about from an Asian culture perspective? Also taught that emotions are not to be expressed. Do you see a theme here? And basically, if you look at different cultures, then you look at our church culture, and what does our church often teach? Well, there's only the good ones that you want to express. Anger, anger is bad. But the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Can you be angry and not sin? But we often treat anger as if it's a sin. But the Bible does not teach that emotions are bad. So what do you think might be Satan's agenda behind these different cultural messages? Any ideas? If we, if we accept that emotions are bad, what's the consequences? Then you won't have love, definitely. Okay. Okay. Okay, so he's saying, I don't, can people in the back hear what he said? No? Okay, so I'll just repeat it. He said, thoughts and feelings create our character, right? And so if those two are essential for our character, then he's attacking our character. Any other thoughts about why Satan might want to sell us this lie about emotions being bad? Divide us, right? How would it divide us? Yeah, because emotions connect us. Someone had a comment in the back? We'll feel guilty, right? We see this in Genesis 3 when Satan tempts us to do something. We do it, and then he adds on guilt and shame for the same thing that he's causing us to do. Yes. Yes, so what she just highlighted is that if the more that you suppress emotions, our body will naturally try to express them. And it'll come out in what we call somatic symptoms. Let me give you a quick case example. So I have a patient, she's, you know, and I'll change some of the details for confidentiality, but let's say she's in her late 60s. Um, she had been sexually abused multiple times in her childhood. She kept it a secret, right? And with that, a lot of different emotions, emotions of anger, of sadness, of shame. And years went on, she kept the secret to herself, and she went to college, she said, this is my opportunity to be a different person right? Nobody's going to know. She stuffed it down, stuffed it down. Was it gone? No, it wasn't. But she lived a great college life. 
Then she had a son. She got married. She had a son living a good life. She had a daughter, and then all of a sudden, she started developing PTSD symptoms. Does anyone have a guess why? She had a daughter, which then reminded her, oh my, my daughter might be abused the way that I was. And her whole trauma resurfaced. It was always there, but it just took a trigger in order to bring something up. It's, you know, from the book called The Body Keeps a Score, is this idea that when we suppress, we think that it's gone, but it's still there. So here's a couple of points. This is not comprehensive, but Satan's agenda for the individual is that you're, if you suppress your emotions, you're not listening to your emotions. So your emotions, now some people might disagree with me on this, all emotions are good. All of them. And the reason why is because emotions are signals. What, what does anxiety, what's a signal of anxiety? What is anxiety telling us? Something can hurt you, right? There's something dangerous. We don't like anxiety. We say it's bad and I want to suppress it. But anxiety is good. It's an alarm system. What about anger? Anger is not good, right? What, why? What does it, what's a signal for? Yeah, so anger is a signal that there's some sort of injustice. Right? That's why it talks about God's anger, God's wrath. Anger is not bad. Jealousy is actually two emotions combined. Jealousy is anger and fear combined. Now, what we will talk about next with thoughts is that emotions are not bad. It's the thoughts behind the emotions. So let me give you an example. Um, you know, if you have a fire, right, and it's, you're building a fire, what happens if you don't feed the fire? What eventually happens to the fire? It dies down. The fire, the flames, are emotions. You express your emotions, your emotions are gone. You know that emotions are just chemicals in your body? But it's the thoughts. If you then feed the fire with more logs, what happens to the fire? It grows or it stays. Our thoughts. So when the Bible says um, that our heart is deceitful above all things, the heart is actually signifying the mind. The thoughts. If I am angry because a child is being abused, is that good? Right? Because there's injustice. But if I'm angry towards somebody, but my thoughts are incorrect, what's the problem? Emotions or the thoughts? The thoughts. And so Satan wants us to stop listening to our emotions because, and I saw this a lot with my veteran patients, is if you numb some of the bad emotions, you also numb the good. They come as a package. So a lot of veterans started expressing, I don't feel joy anymore. I don't feel love anymore. I, a lot of divorces among veterans because they mute the negative emotions. And Satan knows you mute the negative. It's a package of signals that God has given us to alarm us to the world. Happy communicates, I want to do something more. And so we need to stop suppressing our emotions and instead looking at the thoughts. Now I put here ICE. ICE stands for ignore, conceal, explode. If you ignore and conceal your emotions, you'll eventually explode. Panic attacks are often a result of suppressing your anxiety to the point where it then explodes. Your body's trying to express it, to get rid of it. Um, others, what happens is then if I suppress my emotions, there's a quote that says, um, if you don't heal, you'll bleed on people who didn't cut you. It's this idea that if you suppress your emotions, what happens often when you're having a problem at work and you go home, who do you 
take it out on? The people you love the most. So Satan knows that if you suppress your emotions, you're going to end up exploding or leaking or bleeding on people that didn't hurt you. And that causes division. We see this in our church today. People are having petty arguments and conflicts with the pastor, with the head elder, whomever it may be, because they're having problems at home, vice versa, right? And so we need to manage our emotions. And then God, he, his agenda behind having us think that emotions are bad because you start hating the body and the brain that God gave you. Anxiety is a good alarm system, but now I hate my body for making me feel anxious. Yes. Yes, so he's asking, what is an appropriate way of expressing? Now, we'll talk about thought work, because before you express, you need to examine the thoughts behind it. If you say, oh, I'm angry at that person, I'm just going to express my anger. But then you realize that your anger is unjustified. You need to change your thoughts before you express. But let's say it's correct, somebody hurt you. What does the Bible teach about anger or uh, conflict? Does it say to suppress your emotions and just keep it to yourself? No, you actually resolve the conflict. Emotions do two things, for, two things for us. They motivate us, they communicate to us, and they motivate us to action. And you can ask yourself, what is this emotion communicating to me? And what is it motivating me to do? And with that question, the, the latter, it'll help you know how to express. The sadness, I, I just lost a loved one. I'm not going to suppress it. That sadness, you know, is a good, it's a gift of God saying, those who hurt deeply love deeply, right? And so it's an expression of love. So Satan's agenda is for us to individually be hurt by suppressing our emotion, relationally be hurt, and then also to start hating our own bodies and brains that God has given us. So what is God's solution? So that's another kind of question that we have. Any Bible verses on emotions? Anyone can think of any? Okay, I hear Mary Hart doeth good like good like a medicine, yes. Don't let sun go down on your wrath, yes. Any others? Turn the other cheek, okay, that's talking about some interpersonal conflict. Yes, yes, so there's different ones. And I encourage you to start reading the Bible as a practical treatment manual. There's a lot on the emotions, especially... You know which book of the Bible talks a lot about emotions? Proverbs. Psalms expresses a lot. You can learn from David how to express. He's very open with God. This is one of my favorite verses for emotions. It says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Does it say, He who does not get angry is better than the mighty? No, what does it say? Slow to anger. What does that mean? Someone who manages it, right? And he who rules his spirit. So are you in charge of your emotions or are your emotions in charge of you? So he who manages his emotions. Who here has heard of emotional intelligence? Okay. Wow, a lot of you. That's wonderful. Emotional intelligence, one main component, well, two main components is recognizing your own emotions and then learning how to manage them. So what basically this is saying in modern day terms, it's saying, the person who learns to manage their emotions will be the most successful person. That's what this verse is saying. Better than the mighty, better than he who takes a city. You are going to be extremely successful in life. EQ, emotional intelligence, is actually a better predictor of success than IQ. 
So if you learn to manage it, don't suppress it, manage it, manage your emotions. Here's a quote from The Body Keeps the Score. Neuroscience research shows that the only way we can change the way we feel is by becoming aware of our inner experience and learning to befriend what is going on inside ourselves. We need to listen. What is this saying to me? If I'm starting to feel depressed, what is that saying to me? We, we feel it and then we ignore it. Oh, this is telling me that I'm lacking fulfillment in my life. Okay, what do I do? Oh, I'm anxious? What is this telling me? I'm nervous about my test. Oh, that's because I haven't studied. What should I do? I need to study. Listen to yourselves. Befriend yourselves. So listen to and befriend your body. Learn to manage your emotions. And then I mentioned ice, but ACE instead, instead of ignoring, concealing, and exploding, ACE stands for accept your emotions, clarify why am I feeling this way, and then express. Emotions are like energy that needs to be released. If you're sad, cry. If you're feeling anxious, talk with somebody, right? Address your emotions. So Satan's attack, now we're going to move towards our thoughts. Um, so we just covered emotions, but with our thoughts, how many thoughts do you think that we have a day? Someone said millions. I mean, some of us, the overthinkers, may have millions. Thousands of thoughts, yes. We'll get to this in a bit. Um, what percentage of our thoughts do you think are negative? Some, okay. Anyone want to venture a guess? 75%, okay. So research is not very conclusive about how many thoughts. Some say 6,000, some say 12 to 50,000. That's a lot of thoughts. 80% are negative, right? And then some others are more prone to negativity, right? As they say, the negative Nancys. 80% of our thoughts are negative. 95% of our thoughts are repeated. So different kind of same thoughts with different versions, which is actually encouraging because we change one, we change several. Do you have a comment? <laughs> you know, he, so he asked, what about those really upbeat bubbly people. Some of those are the ones that are in my office. Because they say, how do you know if somebody's depressed? They're smiling. Some people are actually very good at masking. So we could have a very bubbly outward appearance, but we could be very negative internally, right? Now some people are also more positive internally. And that's what all of our, our goals would be, right? Now what's Satan's agenda behind these thoughts? Is there a verse that comes to mind when it comes to Satan and our thoughts? He's a liar and the father of all lies, right? John 8, 44. We briefly touched on this. So whenever I have a negative, untruthful thought, who's that from? Satan, right? Now, sometimes Satan suggests it to us, and then we just keep on thinking it over and over again, and then we're kind of the, the, the source as well. But here's a couple of things. We're not going to go through each one, but Satan's agenda is often distorted thinking. We'll talk about the different types of distortions. Ruminative thinking, going over something over and over and over again. It's kind of like, you know, with certain animals where they chew food, they digest it, and then what do they do? They vomit it back up, they chew on it, they digest it, and then what do they do? Again, we do that with our thoughts. Some people, I've known clients who say, 
oh, and this one thing that happened to me 30 years ago. And they just continue to go over it and over and over and over again. And the way that our brain works, there are different pathways in our brain. It's like if anyone here are hikers, if you go on one trail over and over and over and over again, what happens to the trail? It wears a path, right? It deepens. We have these very deep grooves in our brain if we go over a thought over and over. That one thing that that person said to me over and over and over again. So ruminative thinking, he wants us to not only think negatively, but to think it over and over and over again. He also wants us to have avoidance of thinking. Oh, I just don't want to think about it. What might be his agenda behind avoidance? Then I don't deal with it, right? So if, let's try to use an example here. If I heard a friend and I have the thought, oh, I'm a horrible person. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. Just don't think about it. Do I ever resolve that conflict with that friend? No. He wants us to avoid thinking, which also includes positive thinking. We'll come back to this. Sometimes we use scripture to avoid our thinking. Now, of course, scripture can be used in an applied sense, but sometimes we use it to just kind of dismiss something. Just don't think about it. Now, we're going to highlight the distorted thinking part, and we're going to talk about cognitive distortions. How many of you here have heard of cognitive distortions? Okay, good number of you. And that's actually good because uh, we need to repeat it over and over again because we kind of listen to it sometimes of like, oh, I know those but we need to start identifying which are the ones that I engage in. So cognitive distortions, if you think about something that's distorted, it's often taking the original and tweaking it. And often the way that Satan works is he's not coming out with a plain lie. Often it comes like some truth, some lie. And that's what makes these distortions so hard to, to identify because there's a truth in it. Um, so they're distorted thoughts. They're part truth, part lie at times, um, they often come through childhood experiences. And then as we go through each one, I want you to think about what's, why would Satan want me to believe this type of distorted thought, okay? So we're going to cover some stinking thinking here. The first one is overgeneralization. This is when you conclude that what happened to you once will occur over and over and over again. So let me give you some examples. And if you have any examples, feel free to, to, to raise your hand. An example of this might be, I will forever be depressed, right? Maybe you've been depressed for a year, and then you overgeneralize to your entire life. I had a patient where, and I was a little hesitant about asking this, but she's like, oh, I've been depressed for so long. I'm, I'm always going to be depressed. And I know that she suffered with depression for a long time but I had forgotten for how long. And I said, if you were to give a percentage of your life of what you've been depressed, what would it be? She's like, oh, I hope she doesn't overestimate. And she said, actually, only 12%. Because when you really look at the facts, when we overgeneralize, we're blowing it out of proportion. Another example is, how was your week? Oh, it was a horrible week. Was the entire week horrible? No, maybe some things happened but you're overgeneralizing, or, oh, my day was ruined. We say this a lot. What's the impact of this distortion? You just took what, maybe one thing that happened negatively, and then you overgeneralize it, which you are basically creating a bigger problem for yourself. 
end, you're dismissing the good in the day. Definitely. Another example, we do this with people. When 9-11 happened, we started saying, all Muslims are terrorists. Is that true? No. But we took a couple and we overgeneralized. This is what happens with a lot of stereotypes, a lot of racism. Now, why do you think we do that? What's the function behind it? Yeah, so she just highlighted that our brain often categorizes and it can be adaptive in, in the sense of protection. And someone said here also self-protection, yes. Yeah. So at the core of it, it's fear and control, right? And that's going to be a highlight in a lot of these. So let's go to the next one, mental filter. This is as it sounds. You have a filter in your mind and you filter out any good and you dwell on the negative, right? We sometimes do this, sadly, as parents. Kid comes home with a report card, A, 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 B, A, A, A. What do we dwell on? The B. We filter out all the good and we focus on the bad. And we may do this with good intentions. We want to focus on the bad in order to correct it. But what happens over time is that we start painting our world as more and more negative, right? You get an evaluation right, at, at your job. There's all these wonderful remarks, and then there's that one comment of improvement. What do you dwell on? That one comment. And again, from sometimes a perspective of, oh, if I focus on this, I'm going to be better. But over time, it eats at us, right? And we start having a negative perception of our child or of ourselves. Mental filter. Now, the next one's similar. Uh, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, but this is when there's no negative in the situation, just positive, but you disqualify the positive. So one question that I can ask is, how are you with compliments? If you struggle with accepting compliments, it's often because you have this distortion. You disqualify the positive. It's so hard for some people to accept the good in their lives. So they dismiss it. You transform neutral or positive experiences into negative. They say this one's very dangerous because you could have a really good life and still disqualify it. Right? The other ones you might have neg negative aspects, but this one specifically, you can start disqualifying the good and only starting to see your good world as bad. Wow, we got some ringtones to our, our presentations today. All right, this one is a really important one. This is probably one of the most common distortions that I see. Um, so should statements, you create pressure to yourself by saying, I should do this, I must do that. I should, I have to, I must. Now, when I first learned this in graduate school, I thought, but isn't there some things that we should do? <laughs> And then I get a lot of pushback from Christians because they say, well, shouldn't we go to church? Shouldn't I do my devotional? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I? Would you agree with that? But I'm just telling you that we shouldn't have shoulds. You know, the Bible does not talk about shoulds. Now, I was giving, I have a client who's a pastor, and so I love working with pastors, and He's like, you know that the original Ten Commandments, we say, oh, that's shoulds, right? You should do this, you should do that. The original language is actually not shoulds. The original language says you will. 
as a natural consequence of your love for God and man, you will do these things, right? Do you go around saying, oh, I shouldn't kill someone today. I shouldn't kill someone today. No, why not? Because it'll naturally not happen, right? I mean, for some of us, we have to change our thoughts. But should statements create too much pressure? And, this is important, it eliminates choice. God is not a God of shoulds. We have unfortunately made him to be that. But God is not a a God of shoulds. God is a God of choice. He said, I would like you to do these things. These things are good for you. Not that you have to, not that you must, not that you should. They're promises. Yeah, the Ten Commandments are promises. And we can see that. It's a covenant, right? We see that the Israelites are saying, everything the Lord says we will do. So we will naturally do things, right, when we commit our lives to God, not that we should do things. So there's an element, a lot of pressure. So let me give another practical example. Exercise. We often say, I should exercise. That creates a lot of pressure to the point where a lot of people don't want to exercise. Right? So the question is, how do we change this? You need to make it your choice. I want to exercise. I will exercise, not I should. Do you see the difference? So stop having this external pressure. Instead, have an internal desire. And I can guarantee you that if you start living in this way, I don't have to do devotionals. I want to. I don't have to go to church. I want to. Or sometimes I don't want to, but it's good for me. And therefore, I want to. Or I get to, right? It's a privilege, too. So one thing that you, simple little change. Start catching yourself saying should, and just start changing your language. I want to. I can guarantee you, your life's going to change. The next one is magnification, also known as catastrophizing, and minimization. This is when you blow things up out of proportion or shrink them. Do you have a comment? Okay. Mm, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, we do that often, right? Now, with magnification, so this is when you blow things out of proportion. Let me give you an example. It's going to sound extreme, but we do this. So this was like a 15-year-old client of mine. She was really, really stressed about a test she had the next day. She's like, I'm going to fail my test. If I fail my test, I'm going to fail out of the class. If I fail out of the class, I'm going to fail out of high school. If I fail out of high school, I'm going to be homeless and living in my car, but then so I can't pay for my car, and so I'm going to be on the streets living in a box, and someone's going to come and steal my box. And I was like, wow. I was like, I'm sort of impressed in your ability to have distorted thoughts. We laugh, but we do this, right? We catastrophize. We blow things out of proportion. And Satan's agenda behind this is you grow your problems so big that you feel discouraged and overwhelmed. So then, what's the point of even trying? So what, what did she do? She didn't study. She was so paralyzed and crippled by her anxiety. And then what happens? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then she didn't pass her exam. Now, of course, she didn't end up homeless and without a box. But it cripples her to the point where she can't do the very thing that she wants to. Does anyone have an example of catastrophizing? And don't be ashamed, we, we all have distorted thoughts. 
Did anyone have any catastrophizing thoughts about coming to camp meeting? Not coming to camp meeting, okay. Okay. Okay, so she gave the example where she went on a glass-bottom boat. They closed the door, and she had the thought, I'm going to die. She's like, I knew I was going to die. Now, you're here, so I'm guessing you didn't die. <laughs> you go, Okay, right? So catastrophizing, and that's where you can start simply thinking, how many people have been on a glass boat and haven't died, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And do you see how it's blowing things out of proportion? Now, we're going to talk about uh, positive thinking because that's also a distorted thought often. But then we can go to the other extreme. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. No, sometimes you might have something going on in your body that you need to pay attention to, right? Did you have a comment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So another example, often we apply this to our Christian walk. I did something, and all of a sudden, God doesn't love me, right? It's a catastrophizing of our sin. Now, we have to call sin by its name, right? We need to acknowledge the sin, but it's important to also not catastrophize, right? Making the, the problem and the sin bigger than God. Yes. Yes, definitely. Insurances. You think about the news. The news, right? it's unfortunately no longer news, they're operating from a place to, to cause fear to us, right? Catastrophizing. Now, let's take a moment to think about minimization. Some people have the opposite problem. They shrink their problems. Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's nothing, right? Oh, I have cancer. Oh, it's nothing. That's a big deal. So what we're thinking about here, it's not magnifying, not minimizing. Just take truth as it is, right? Okay, so here's an example of that, right? Although, often, and let's maybe say, instead of you, let's think about God. God is bigger than our problems. But we often look at our problems as if it's a challenge, right? Which one's bigger? God. And we're not calling God an elephant, but you know what I mean. And yet, we catastrophize, and we almost see ourselves as the mouse, and our problems as the elephant. Personalization, so this one, um, there's two sides to it. Either you conclude that every negative event that happens is your fault, or the opposite of you blame other people when you are responsible for something. So personalization, an example of this would be, um, this happens a lot, unfortunately. Uh, parents are getting a divorce, and the kid says, it's all my fault. Uh, this happens a lot with sexual abuse. Perpetrator does something, has abuse, then the victim says, it was my fault. I was a perfect candidate. I didn't tell anyone. Right? Personalization is a distortion. It's a lie from the enemy. If there was something that you're responsible for, take responsibility. But often we blame ourselves for things that are not our fault. And if you have this distortion, you're going to see that it's a pattern in different things. You have a conflict with somebody, and you're like, it's, it was all my fault. Right? When it might be the other person's responsibility. Now, the opposite is sometimes you have the tendency to blame others. Oh, my, it's be, I've been depressed because it's my parents' fault. Now, your parents may have an impact on you, but you're 50-something years old, and you have choices to make today. So are you either personalizing or blaming others? 
This one's a very, very common one, also known as black or white thinking. You interpret events as either extremely good or bad. There's no in between. Um, for any of my perfectionists out there, this is your number one distortion. Either it's perfect or a complete failure. And what happens with this is if it's so hard to maintain perfection or try to, that you decide to, well, what's the point? And you give up altogether. So Satan really gets us as Christians. So either I'm having a perfect devotional life or what's the point in trying? But one of my clients said this, there's grace in the gray, right? So what I tell people is don't try to attain perfection. Strive for excellence. Try your best. And wherever you land, that's perfection. But if you try so hard for perfection, especially if you're comparing to other people, you're going to feel constantly defeated. All or nothing thinking, black or white, no gray. The next one is when we label and mislabel, whether ourselves or other people. You can often see these when you have the I am statement. You're doing something and then, oh, why did I do that? I'm, why are you so dumb? Right? We talk really negatively to ourselves. You'd say, would I ever tell somebody that? Right? If they did the same thing, would I tell them that they're dumb? No. But we're our harshest critic. Now, sometimes we do that to other people. We're driving, someone cuts you off, and what do you think? Idiot. <laughs> yes. Jerk. What a jerk. Right? We're labeling them. Now, the problem with this is that you're attaching someone's identity with what they do. But a person is more than that, that label. I'm not stupid. I'm not dumb. That person's not a jerk. They're not a loser, right? We use these labels. Now, we can also see this in like the medical field. Um, they're trying to change this. Some people are catching on. Instead of saying that person's a diabetic, they're saying that person has diabetes because that person is more than their diabetes. But when we attach a label, we say that that person is all, that's all who they are. Oh, that person's a schizophrenic. They're not a schizophrenic. They have schizophrenia. They're more than their disease. But we like to use labels for people. All right. This next one, emotional reasoning, you accept your emotions as evidence for the truth. So I feel guilty, therefore I did something wrong. I feel jealous, therefore you're up to no good. Right? You, you take your emotions as truth. You don't examine them. Here's some other examples. Um, I feel bad, therefore it is bad. I feel anxious, therefore it, it must, there must be danger. I feel jealous, therefore you're up to something. I feel sick and shaky, my life is awful. I feel so angry at you, therefore you deserve to be punished. You use your emotions to dictate what is true. Number 10, there's two parts. So un they're under the category of jumping to conclusions. These two are also one of the most, two of the most common distortions. Mind reading is you assume that you know what the other person is thinking. Let's say um, you see me elsewhere on, on campus, and you say, hi, Katie, and I walk right past you. Don't say hi, don't even look at you. Maybe I have kind of this facial expression. What do you think? I'm mad. She ignored me. Some of you guys have negative conclusions. Oh, <laughs> yeah, these are, hopefully those are not your, your truthful thoughts. What, what are other alternative possibilities? I got something on my mind. What else? 
I didn't hear you. These days it's very possible, right, to be using some AirPods. So if we say, oh, she's mad, we're jumping to conclusions without sufficient evidence. Couples do this a lot. Oh, but I know, I know him. I had a couple who, their anniversary, very, like I think 25th anniversary, big milestone. And he's like, oh, she's, she's, she's quiet. She's giving me the silent treatment. She must be mad at me, right? Mind reading, jumping to conclusions. And, you know, he says, like, okay, I'm going to distance myself. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Just take some distance. And she was mind reading. She's like, he's acting strange. He's acting a little distant. He must be mad. Now, a week went by. They didn't talk to each other. They, came, they waited for therapy. And then they found out that neither one was mad at each other. And they ruined their anniversary because of mind reading. What would we do instead? What could have solved all of that? They're like, hey, I noticed that you're a little quiet. Not, hey, are you mad at me? <laughs> I noticed you're a little quiet. The reason why she was quiet was she had a lot on her mind from work. Right? So we can avoid mind reading. Don't jump to a conclusion. Gather more evidence. Yes. <laughs> yes. He said when he got married, he lost all his psychic abilities. Fortune telling is also a form of jumping to conclusions, but about predicting the future. Oh, I just know that, oh, when we get there, oh, so-and-so is going to be there, then she's going to talk to me a lot, and she's just going to talk and talk and talk, and, right? We're jumping to conclusions. Oh, I just know that, you know, if I go to that presentation, this will happen, right? We jump to something without knowing. Does anyone have a superpower about predicting the future? They want to profit here? <laughs> we don't have the ability. So when we predict that the, the future is going to be negative, it becomes a self-sabotaging thought. Then I'll act in accordance to that, and then you actually take steps to ruin your own future. So don't predict that things will happen negatively. They say 85% um, of things we worry about never happen. 85%. You want to know what the 15% is? If it does happen, we're better prepared to, to handle it than what we expect. So most times, it turns out better than we expect. And if it doesn't, we're still able to manage it. Think about all the things you told yourself you can't do. You can't handle it. It's too much. You were able to overcome. All right. So we're going to play kind of a name that cognitive distortion. Did you know that there are cognitive distortions in the Bible? Yeah, a lot of them. A lot of them. So we're going to read kind of some brief biblical passages. And I want you to think about the list of the ones we went through, and I want you to call out the distortions that you see here. So this is found in the story of Abraham and Sarah. This is talking about when they went to Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Fortune-telling. He's predicting the future in a negative way. What else? I heard it. Catastrophizing. They will kill me, right? And you can see the negative consequences of cognitive distortion. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, 
here's your wife, take her and go. He was supposed to be a witness to these people. He was supposed to have trust in God, that God is bigger than his fears. But he gave in to his fears and then lied and sinned as a consequence. All right, the next one, Genesis 25. This is the interaction between Jacob and Esau. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. A little sneaky. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? And it goes on. What cognitive distortion is this? Catastrophizing. I'm going to die. As a child, he's be like, I'm starving. And my dad's like, no, you're hungry. Kids in Africa are starving, right? We tend to catastrophize. And what was the result? We again see negative consequences. Okay. Now there are a lot of distortions with the Israelites, a lot. So this is just one example. This is when they um, sent the, the spies into the land, and they came back right, with a report, and they said, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we. Okay, seems like some truth. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There, were, there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak come from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Catastrophizing. And what was the opposite of catastrophizing? Minimizing. So they magnified their enemies, and they minimize themselves. We're like grasshoppers. And also, if you think about it, they're minimizing God and God's ability to overcome. Was there some truth in this? That maybe they were, you know, tall, but they exaggerated the truth. And what was the result of it? Forty years. Do you see the negative impact of our thoughts? Our thoughts lead to actions. So here's a, a list of cognitive distortions. And if, again, if you want any of these, you can email me and I can send you some handouts on these as well. So why? Why does Satan have us believe these distortions? He knows as the impact of our thoughts. So it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I like this version better. It says, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So why does he attack our thoughts? Because he knows that you won't be transformed. You don't transform your thoughts, you won't be a new person. He also knows that if, you, if he does this, you won't know and do God's will for you and for your life. Continues. There's another verse. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. What does that mean? Reread it. What does it mean from it flow the springs of life? So here's some different um, translations. It says, carefully guard your thoughts. Be careful how you think. For it determines the course of your life. For it is the source of life because they are the source of true life. And I love this last one. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. As a man thinks, so is he. So Satan knows that it impacts our very lives. 
There's another um, quote that kind of has the same principles. Watch your thoughts, they become. Watch your words, they become. Watch your actions, they become. Watch your habits, they become. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. In other words, watch your thoughts because it becomes your salvation. Right? Be careful. Guard your heart, your mind with all diligence. Everything in your life is determined by your thoughts, including your character and salvation. So why does he attack? We have these three main points. He knows that our thoughts are critical for our character and salvation. So what types of thoughts should we be thinking? Positive thoughts? Right? We think often, they say, just be, think positive, right? But positive sometimes is not true. If I messed up and I say, oh, yeah, and I'm really dwelling on it. Yeah, you messed up. The moment you say, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it, that's also a lie from Satan. The Bible does not teach us to think on positive things only. The Bible is very clear. It says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, finally, brothers, whatever is true. We'd probably jump down to these other things. Oh, whatever's positive. This verse is not saying whatever is positive. It starts with whatever is true. If you messed up, God wants you to acknowledge what you did. Whatever is true, just, holy, etc., think or meditate, dwell on these things. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And God is not a God that is positive. God is a God of truth. You should know the truth, and the truth sets you free, not what's positive sets you free. And popular psychology right now is teaching you only be positive, only be positive. No, whatever things are true. So in our title, Freedom Through Captivity, the way that you find freedom is found in 2 Corinthians 10.5, where it talks about that we have, we're in a war, not of flesh and blood. And then it says, how do you basically fight back in that war, take every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So what does that look like practically? I'd like you to remember three C's. Catch, check, change. When it says keep every thought captive, bring, catch that thought. You're having an interaction, you're feeling you know, angry at that person. Catch that thought. What was the thought that I was having? Oh, she, she's a horrible person, right? Catch it, then check it. Is that thought true? Oh, well, I'm saying she's a horrible person. Is that really true? And then change it to a more realistic, balanced, and helpful thought. I love this. You can ask different questions. Is this thought true? Does it honor God? Was it, what is its origin? Is it the enemy? Is it uplifting? Does it involve guilt? Is it helpful? Is it a temptation? Does it strengthen you? Catch your thought, check it, and then change it. Now, in therapy, what we do is we have people journal their thoughts. Because we can have, remember, thousands of thoughts. So in order to keep every thought captive, it's basically like you have a thought, you need to catch it. You need to write it down. So this is an example of what you can do, is you write down what was the situation, what were my thoughts, what, how did it make me feel, and then disputation is basically wrestling with the thoughts. I like to think about you're putting your thought on trial, and you're giving it a fair trial by listening to both sides. If you had the thought, oh, I messed up. Okay, well, what are all the reasons that I messed up? 
What are all the reasons why maybe I'm, I'm not including some information? Listen to both sides. If you say, here's an example, I can't do anything right, what distortion is that? All or nothing. I can't do anything right. You say, okay, let me list all the things I can do right. Let me list all the things I can't. And the moment you list one for an all or nothing thought, you already changed the thought, right? Because you said, I can't do anything right. If you find one thing, you can do something. So this helps you to catch your thoughts, to start checking them, looking at whatever things are true and helpful. Because just because a thought is true doesn't mean that it's helpful to dwell on. Right? So true and helpful. Here are some other questions that you can ask yourself. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of them. But you could ask, you know, is there an alternative explanation? This is really good if you're in conflict. Don't just jump to a conclusion, oh, this person's wrong or this person's a certain way. Maybe I'm not thinking of something. Basically, um, another way to say this is we're trying to have people to have more cognitive flexibility. We're very rigid in our thinking. We think we know what's right. Instead, bringing these thoughts to God. If you have the, the tendency to catastrophize, you can ask yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? Could I live through it? What's the best thing that could happen? So it's kind of, what's the worst? What's the best? And then what's probably going to happen? Right? Uh, what's the effect of me believing the automatic thought? This is a great question. Why would the enemy want me to believe this thought? I'm having a negative thought about my spouse. Why would the enemy want me? And then when you recognize, wow, I see his agenda, right? We're putting in the context of the great controversy. You're more likely to change your thoughts. Uh, so here's some examples. Overall, it's like putting each thought on trial, captive to Christ, on a fair trial with Christ as the judge. We can't judge because we are biased towards the negative. And him deciding whether those thoughts are true or false. If you implement this in your life, your life is radically going to change. Allow Jesus, God, to be the judge of your thoughts, not you. And so, coming back to our theme verse, when it talks about knowing the time, as we know more about the great controversy, including over our own minds, the lies that are happening in our thoughts, that's when we're able to awake out of sleep. But many of us are asleep, to our own very problems. We say, oh, well, you know, we got to fix the church. Oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. But we got to fix also what's happening inside our very own minds. So I want to leave with a couple of questions. We, every seminar, we have some questions of reflections. What is your view on emotions? Right? We talked about the view that Satan wants us to have. And how has it impacted your own emotional health? How has it impacted how you help others manage their emotions? So if you say, oh, I have a belief that emotions are bad or weak or whatever it may be, how has that impacted your own emotional experience? How has it impacted how you help others? Then what are the lies that you've been believing about yourself and others? Bring those before God. How have these lies impacted you, your family, the church, etc.? A lot of times we have a lot of lies about our global church. God, help me to see the truth. Help me to see the truth. And then what is one thing you can do to begin to better manage your emotions and or begin to tell yourself and others the truth? And then for those of you who wanted the resources, here's the research page as well. Well, let's close with a word of prayer that you can take your pictures after.
Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for being a God of truth. We thank you that we can bring our thoughts to you. And God, I just want to say that many of us have believed the lies for so long. And today we want to commit to you to bring every thought captive. It can be exhausting at times because we're so used to just accepting these thoughts as true. But we want to be faithful. As Romans 12, 2 says, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because we know that as we keep our mind stayed on thee, you will give us perfect peace. So please help us in this, even in this very moment throughout today. And may it be a new habit in our lives to keep every thought captive so that we can have freedom through captivity in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.